costume drama rewind as we get ready to dive into our last two contenders for Joe March Madness. But first, a quick update on both of our individual brackets. For round one, I chose the 1949 version starring June Allison over Katherine Hepburn's legendary but uneven performance in the 1933. For round two, I gave a surprise narrow win to Maya Hawke in the 2017 over Winona Ryder's beloved 1994 version. Coming into round three then, I am again giving the nod to Maya Hawke, who will go head to head with whoever wins this round. In round one, Katherine Hepburn's lasting influence on the role of Joe was the coin toss that made her the winner. And last time, Maya Hawke beat out Winona. When it comes to choosing between Katherine and Maya, Maya beats out Catherine. No questions asked. Catherine's going to beat out you. Let's get to it then. The 2018 adaptation was released on September 28th, 2018, the 150th anniversary of Little Women's publication. We at Costume Drama Rewind love an anniversary tie-in. It was directed by Claire Niederprum and stars Sarah Davenport as Joe, Ali Jennings as Beth, Leah Thompson as Marmee, Lucas Gray... Gabriel as Laurie, Melanie Stone as Meg, Elise Jones as younger Amy, and Taylor Murphy as older Amy. Greta Gerwig directed the 2019 version, and it stars Sorsha Ronan as Joe, Timothée Chalamet, Timothy Chalamet, anyway, him as Laurie, Laura Dern as Marmee, Florence Pugh as Amy, Emma Watson as Meg, and Eliza Scanlon as Beth. Let's jump right in with Little Faithful as we score both movies according to how closely they adhere to Louisa May Alcott's original text. The 2018 takes the classic story we all know and love and brings it into the 21st century. The broad outlines of the story have Mr. March serving in the army in what we assume is some composite Middle Eastern country, while Marmy homeschools the girls so that they're still a little bit out of step with the mainstream of American society. Here, the Pickwick Club is run like an army platoon, apparently in salute to their father's service, and they start every meeting with 20 push-ups. It's the first time I've ever not wanted to be part of the Pickwick Club. (laughs) It was so bad. In this version, the New Year's Ball at the Gardeners becomes a typical high school rager, at which Laurie and Joe get down to the pop rock hit Dancing is a Human Right, made famous by the movie To All the Boys I Loved Before, You don't have to judge me, I'm judging myself. While Meg, rather than spraining her ankle, actually falls into the swimming pool. In this version, Meg doesn't go to Vanity Fair, but instead to a high school prom, where her friends dress her up in some Forever 21-esque sequined number instead of her grandmother's dubiously vintage dress. (laughs) Kate Spade. (laughs) John Brooke is still Laurie's tutor, but is way more fun here, bringing Meg a cheeseburger that starts their romance. He's like, what, 35, hanging outside the local high school? That's red flag energy. They don't make it clear. He's got cheeseburgers. (laughs) We still get the great book burning of 2006, I guess. But this time, Amy is thrown from a horse instead of falling through the ice in the aftermath. Laurie heads off to Stanford while Joe fails to get into Oxford. And instead, she moves to New York to live in a Queen's apartment with Aunt March and take care of her little rat dog. She meets the professor while he's teaching at Columbia, and she tries to interest him in her book. Amy heads off to Europe, this time under her own steam and on her own dime, and starts dating Laurie. Beth is diagnosed with an aggressive form of leukemia, her illness brings everyone back home, and Joe shaves her own head in solidarity. Beth improves for a time, then relapses and passes away. Joe writes their family's story and sends it to Friedrich, who shows up to tell her that he'll help publish it, and then asks her to move back to New York with him. The movie ends as the girls prepare for Joe's wedding to Friedrich. 
I'm not sure to what extent we can really judge the faithfulness of the 2018 since it was adapted to take place between, you know, 2007 to now. I mean, I think it does a decent job of updating a story that's set in a specific time and place to present day without losing too much of the essence. In some ways, it almost tries too hard to do that. The March girls are all still extremely devoted to the classic Christian text, Pilgrim's Progress, which feels kind of random since they're otherwise a pretty secular household. When Jo cuts off her hair, she tells them that she sold it to pay for some of the damage she did at the hospital. More about that later. Uh, but while locks of love was certainly a thing, I'm not sure if any U.S. barber is randomly buying hair in the mid-2000s. Especially at, like, 10 at night. So while they're to be commended for trying so hard to bring these details into the present day, it falls a little bit flat. Oh, I mean, there are some things that do make the transition to the current day pretty well, like Marmy volunteering at a soup kitchen, Meg's wedding being super Pinteresty. There is a chalkboard sign on Marmy's chair that announces her as the Marmy of the bride. Oh, I want to take half points immediately for that. Oh. Um, oh, also the girls act out stories with a camcorder. I thought that worked. And Joe wanting her book to be like whatever the current trend is, whether it's vampires or zombies. I also like the fact that she calls essential oils a pyramid scheme because that's <laughs> what it is. And let's not forget that her rallying cry to do all the things was actually a meme for a while. As for the 2019 Greta Gerwig version, while the movie did get a lot of praise for being a modern take on the novel, it's interesting that a lot of the actual text comes from the book. And Gerwig also worked in other Alcott books as well, when Joe fumes in the attic about how women have more than just hearts. The monologue that launched a thousand memes. That came from the book Rose and Bloom. And yet, them speaking the text isn't nearly as stilted sounding as when the 1933 and the 1949 did it. So if we're scoring on the Dimension Little Faithful, I have to give the 2018 version a solid five. They tried really hard, but they just didn't really think hard enough about how some things would translate. For the 2019 version, I'm awarding them a 7.5, based largely on how well they incorporate original dialogue without falling into the 1933 and 1949 traps of trying to go at it word for word. Yeah, I'm going to go with four for 2018, and for 2019, I'm going to do seven. I'm going to take off a few points, though, for the twist ending where it suggests that her ending up with Bear, who is not German, he's Francais in this, is actually just made up for her book. It's a clever idea, but with Little Men and Joe's Boys featuring Joe as wife and mother, Louisa May Alcott clearly did mean to marry off Joe. Maybe those books just happened in Joe's head. <laughs> So next we move on to artistic attempts, scoring the movies according to how well their particular thing, their unique director stamp, worked. What's interesting to me is that both movies make heavy use of the time jump, hopping back and forth between the girl's adolescence and adulthood. Both the movies start with Jo in New York City trying to sell her writing. In the 2018, she's blundering her way through some kind of preview workshop at Columbia University yelling at the panel when they don't immediately see her greatness. More on her character's particular thing later. Well, in the 2019, in a scene directly from the book, she's negotiating with a magazine publisher under an assumed name. From there, the movies bounce back and forth in an interesting way, but especially in the 2019 version, it can be really hard to figure out where you are in the story at any given time. And the 2019 version does the flashback narrative format a bit differently, each flashback is paired with a parallel event happening in the current time. 
such as Meg giving in to temptation and buying the silk dress that she can't afford, alongside the flashback of her going to that debutante ball and committing the shameful act of, oh, let me check my notes, having a flute of champagne, letting her friends call her a silly nickname, and borrowing a pretty dress. Lori, you are the worst. <laughs> it's also interesting that this arranging and rearranging the story gets referenced with the scene towards the end where Joe's shuffling around the pages of her manuscript. But overall, I think this format sacrifices character development and the development of the characters' relationships with each other. For example, if you didn't know anything about the story, you'd be so weirded out that Amy has any feelings at the beginning for drunk and dissipated Lori. Even though he kind of looks like young Jess Mariano. (laughs) (laughs) And this issue with the relationships, it also includes the sisters' bonds with each other, which is like pretty much the primary thing about the book that resonates. The movie's need to make the time jump scenes parallel one another also leads to some real and genuine weirdness. Oh, yeah. This is most apparent with how they handle Beth's illness and death. In one scene, Joe falls asleep while tending Beth through the worst of her scarlet fever. She wakes up to find the room empty, runs downstairs, and happily finds Beth sitting up at the table enjoying some broth. The next scene has Joe falling asleep sitting at Joe's deathbed. When she wakes, the room is bare and Beth's body has been taken out, and audiences, aka me, will wonder until the end of time how Joe managed to sleep through all of Beth dying her body being carried out, and the room being stripped and cleaned. Maybe she'd had some of the drugs that Catherine Hepburn was taking in the second half of the 1933. Anyway, it is such a weird moment as to completely distract from the tragedy of Beth's passing, which also loses any of its emotional resonance when the very next shot is of a fully alive Beth at Meg's wedding. What I like the most about Greta Gerwig's artistic vision is that you can tell this was a labor of love. It was filmed entirely in Massachusetts, and she deliberately chose Concord and the town near Fruitlands, which was Bronson's failed commune. One scene is even filmed in Bronson's schoolhouse. Apparently filming in Orchard House would have been logistically impossible. Alas. The beach scenes were filmed in Ipswich, home to the world's best clams. Go eat at the clam box. Not a sponsor. Yet. And it's not that far away from Boston, so the March girls could have actually gone there for vacation. Gerwig also looked to artwork of the time for inspiration. For example, the beach scene, along with Joe's outfit for it, was inspired by Winslow Homer's beachside painting, Eaglehead, Manchester, Massachusetts. The flashback scenes are all bathed in the same glowy, goldeny light that's in a lot of the artwork that provided inspiration. And the New York Times reports that she even assigned actors homework, such as reading Emily Dickinson's poems and watching various movies about the time period, including Gigi for Laurie and Amy's relationship in Paris, which is actually, frankly, just creepy. And awkward. (laughs) Additionally, the handwriting for Joe was a copy of Louisa May Alcott's. And she had a specific approach for the filming. During the flashback scenes, the camera moves around a lot more and it's closer to the sisters to mimic their more youthful actions. And for scenes where they're grown up, the camera is farther away. But I know Gerwig wanted the girls to look like, quote unquote, a hippie family, which the Alcotts kind of were for the time. But I hated how sloppy most of the girls always looked. Book Marmy might be anti-physical punishment for kids, but there's an entire chapter about how Marmy enforces tidiness. Girls, girls, have you both got nice pocket handkerchiefs? <laughs> and even Meg, who spends pretty much the entire book telling Joe, that's not proper, has her hair flopping all over the place all the time. Joe being a sloppy mess works fine for me, because that's pretty much how she gets described in the book. 
But Beth and Meg being messy doesn't really make sense for their character. But it does reinforce Aunt Meryl Streep March's statement that Amy's the only sane member of the family. If perfect Swiss braids are standing for sanity, then Amy has it in spades. I loved her hair. It's interesting to see how Marmee comes across in both films. In the 2018, despite the fact that Leah Thompson is the most famous person in this movie, she's a total background figure with no real scenes of her own and only one memorable line, which actually happens to be a direct quote from Susan Sarandon's Marmee. Stolen valor. Laura Dern's Marmee, meanwhile, is played as a really loud, chaotic, slightly overwhelming presence who is immediately over-familiar with everyone. Call me Marmee, everyone does. I'm not a regular Marmee. I'm a cool Marmee. So while she's very much a presence, she doesn't actually seem to have that much influence on the girls or their family life generally. She does have one interesting line where she tells someone at the charity she works for that she's always been ashamed of her country. It's a line that feels tailor-made to resonate with modern audiences, but is actually just a good reflection of how dedicated abolitionists like the Marches and their contemporaries really felt. Mostly, though, she's depicted more as just another one of the girls than as the family's seat of all wisdom. Just like how Robin Swikard wanted to speak Alcott's feminist subtext, and Swikard was a producer for this movie as well, Gerwick had the characters speak freely about money and how it guides Joe's and Amy's actions, as well as Aunt March's advice for them. A lot of the commentary around this movie makes it sound like this was super revolutionary on Gerwick's part, but you don't really have to do a deep dive to get to this in the text. Throughout the book, there's discussion about how Meg's supposed to be the one to marry well and restore the family's finances. And in letters that Amy writes from Europe, she says this is like her responsibility to do now. The narrator talks about how Joe's writing pays a lot of the family's bills, and it made it possible for her to take Beth on her last vacation. And in fairness, some of the other movies that we've reviewed include some of the text as well. So now that I've spent this entire segment denouncing both movies, (laughs) I want to speak up a little for both of them. Both of their respective production teams worked really hard to find sets that feel familiar yet fresh. The 2018 soundtrack is a fun mix of sensitive hipster music and pop rock bangers. Wait, pop rock bangers? Is that what our fellow youths are saying now? Well, I'm very youthful, so obviously. (laughs) I don't know what you're saying, Laura. And the 2019 score is just lovely. The 2019 in particular also has some stunningly beautiful camera work. Both movies are really creative and interesting in wildly divergent ways, and for those efforts, I'm giving the 2018 version a 6 and the 2019 version an 8.5. The 2018 gets a 4 out of 10 for me, because it tried, just not hard enough, maybe sometimes too hard. (laughs) Uh, 2019 gets solid 9 out of 10. Even though I did have some quibbles over some of the stuff, I really love just how dedicated Greta Gerwig was in creating the feel and the ambiance of the movie. So finally we come to Joe's journal, in which we score the effectiveness of the Joe character in both movies. Well, in the 2018 version, it appears that in trying to adapt the story for the modern era, the screenwriters took all of Joe's quirks and shortcomings and foibles and they put them all on full blast. She is rude and hateful in almost every interaction with people, and she can't even handle feeding her aunt's dog. And she's one of those girls who thinks that she's being clever and witty when she's just being a jerk. And she never learns to control her temper, which was a major thing for Joe in the book. In short, I hate her, I hate all of her stupid fantasy stories, which she apparently just stole from A Wrinkle in Time. 
And you can't call yourself a struggling writer in New York City if you aren't working at least three waitress jobs. Those are the rules. So two and only two. You know, there can be a lot of legitimate debate about who has played the best joke. We have found the worst. (laughs) Sarah Davenport's character is one of the least likable people I've ever seen on screen. The character is virtually ruined in this version. My dislike of Amy is sufficiently well-documented at this point that when I say that I was rooting for her during the Great Book Burning, you'll know exactly the depths of what I mean. (laughs) Joe is awful in that scene. She reveals Amy's childish crush on Laurie in the unkindest, most humiliating way possible, then dashes out laughing about it. On her return, she continues to needle and mock Amy, telling her that the entire family basically hates her, so that when Amy throws Joe's notebook on the fire, it feels wholly deserved. I think this movie and the 2019 are actually written as Vindication of Amy. Don't make me take any of this back. <laughs> Later, Joe relentlessly tears down Meg for wanting to get married, telling her that she'll be wrinkled and miserable by the time she's 40, and she almost doesn't even show up for the wedding. For someone who makes so much of her love for her sisters, she doesn't even like them. Joe does not seem to have any affection or respect for anyone but Beth at any point in this movie. When Beth is diagnosed with cancer, Joe destroys the nurse's station on her way out of the hospital, overturning an entire cart full of prepared medications, which... You know, might have some implications for people in this cancer ward of the hospital. There's just no excuse for her at all, and no feeling sympathy for her at any point. If, as I mentioned last time, Maya Hawkstrow is a bit of a crank, Sarah Davenport's is just such a relentlessly terrible person that all my 30 years of built-up affection for Joe could not save her. I award her no points, and may God have mercy on her soul. So... Tell us how you really feel. Uh, (laughs) I've got more where that came from. (laughs) To be honest, remember how last time we had entered the witness protection program? Yes. Oh, dear. I'm fairly ambivalent about the source of Ronan. Please don't hit me. I feel like that's a less controversial opinion. Yeah. She does a perfectly decent check-the-box job of being lively, determined, Joe- but she just didn't really make much of an impact on me. Do you think it's because we've been watching nothing but Little Women for like two months now? I see the March girls in my dreams. (laughs) Yeah, I just didn't think of her performance as being memorably unique or any sort of way. So I'm going to go with a seven. And that's largely because she was going up against the 2018 version. Which is dumpster fire. (laughs) So I actually liked her. I think we've seen every possible interpretation of Joe at this point. Oh my gosh. And I think Saoirse Ronan's plays Joe right down the middle. She's got some fire and temper and pep, but also some softness and sweetness for the people who matter. I thought it was an interesting little detail how she and Laurie swap clothes a lot. Not in an overt way. You'll just see one of them wearing a vest in one scene and the other wearing the same vest in the next scene. But I didn't find it to be true to the character that she's really touchy-feely with him all of the time. Lots of hanging on him and hugs. In the book, the one scene in which she flies at him was really embarrassing for her and a little bit, like, of scandal. He liked it. (laughs) I like it when you fly at me. But all things considered, I am happy to award Saoirse Ronan's Joe a 6.5 out of 10. And with all that said, my final score for the 2018 version of Little Woman is a dismal 11 points, while the 2019 version more than doubles it with 22 and a half points. For 2018, I've got 10. Oof. <laughs> Not a perfect 10 either, but 2019 is 23. So, actor count. 
Strangely enough, we only have one entry for the actor count this time. In the 2019 version, Chris Cooper, who plays Mr. Lawrence, was Colonel Harry Burwell in The Patriot, and I don't remember him at all, do you? Oh, he was the best! He was the guy who was Mel Gibson's friend, and then at the end... Oh, that guy. He names his new baby Gabriel. Yeah, yeah, with the, with the, the long ponytail. Yeah, he's great. Okay. Big fan. Okay, we love you. So well, next- I love him. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast loves you. <laughs> next week, we're going to say farewell to Little Women with Harvest Time, in which we wrap up our first podcast season by announcing our final winners of Joe March Madness. We discuss the cultural impact of the story, and we hope, we hope to have a special guest. This is Costume Drama Rewind. Thanks for listening. Do 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 do